0: It's time for the IHSA Safety Podcast. Welcome to the IHSA Safety Podcast. I'm Enzo Garitano, President and CEO. And in today's episode on Assessing Your Mental Health, host Ken Rayner and IHSA's mental health and wellness specialist, Kathy Martin, continue their discussions on mental health. Ken and Kathy, over to you. Thanks, Enzo. Kathy Martin, we're back once again to do another podcast on mental health. I believe this is the fifth one that uh, you and I have done together. So it's great to have you back. Thank you for joining us once again. The title of this particular podcast is Assessing Your Mental Health. So, Kathy, my first question is, why are we discussing assessing mental health as opposed to assessing mental illness? don't the two essentially mean the same thing?
1: Well, Ken, thanks for having me back. And yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, The short answer is, well, it depends on who you are, as every person's really going to view this differently. And my hope, of course, is that people uh, start to think of their mental health in the same way that we do or most of us do with our physical health. So like, for example, Ken, if I were to ask you, um, how do you assess your physical health? What would you say?
0: Oh, Kathy, asking me questions now. Okay, um, <laughs>
1: turn on the tables. <laughs> okay,
0: so if if I yeah, so if I assess my physical health, I guess I do it two ways. One, um, am I am I in pain? Am I hurting? And then, to, on the flip side of that, do I feel good? And you know, am I am I functioning? you know, as I feel I need to on a daily basis. So, um, you know, in terms of when I'm feeling good, uh, I probably don't take as much notice of it as opposed to when I'm feeling bad. Right? And then, then it's more recognizable, and I'm trying to do something reactive to address it. Um, I probably don't spend enough, enough time as to making sure that all those things that I should be doing, whether it's getting enough sleep or exercising, or you know, if, if I'm working uh, all day at my computer per se, you know, making sure that I get up and ergonomically I'm, I'm set up properly, and I'm getting up for stretch breaks, and I'm moving around enough. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I assess it two ways, and unfortunately, I, I probably don't give enough credit to the. Days that I feel good and say, what did I do that day? That was really good. And I'm more so taking reactionary measures on the days that I don't feel good with that. I think that's how I would assess it.
1: Yeah, well, that's pretty common for most of us. I think we, especially as we age, Ken, you and I are getting there where, you know, we're feeling the aches and pains a little more. So we tend to are looking for those problems. But uh, yeah, no, it's really important that we assess our physical health um, in those in both, like watching for the signs of perhaps some an illness or something that might be creeping up on us. But also as you just really mentioned was that taking note of the positive and those good days and making sure that we're doing more of that so that we we maintain our health because I think that's the end goal most of us want to be healthy and we strive to to have health in our life. So if we were to view assessing our mental health in a similar way we can look for gaps that were you know that are keeping us both from feeling mentally healthy and thriving as well as those things that might be triggering us uh, to maybe look at maybe there's a problem but you know we really need to assess for our mental health and find out ways to make ourselves thrive as well but let's Just step back for a moment um, and I just want to define for our listeners what mental health is because some people really get confused between mental health and mental illness and they use them interchangeably and really they're not the same thing. So the World Health Organization says that mental health is a state of mental well-being that enables people to cope with the stresses of life uh, realize their abilities, learn well and work well, and contribute to their community. So mental health is more than the absence of mental disorders. When we're looking at or assessing our mental health, we, like I said, we need to look beyond uh, if we're sick or not to how we can improve our mental well-being. Now, our mental health exists really on a complex continuum, which is experienced differently um, from one person to the next. So it's important for each of us to self-monitor and self-assess where you might be on this continuum at any given time um, with regards to your mental health. Some days, of course, you know, we're thriving, we're functioning well. And I think you mentioned that, Ken, you know, you don't give that too much thought. But other days, we might be barely able to function at all, because our ability to cope at that moment is being challenged in some way. Now, of course, we can bounce around on the continuum and slide, you know, up or down. Yet, when our ability to cope starts to diminish more frequently, and we find ourselves struggling emotionally, maybe a bit too often, and we're in greater general pain, um, and that pains lingering longer than usual, it is this emotional pain that we uh, should really be paying closer attention to. So let me just try to explain this a little bit more. (laughs) When you think of physical pain, it's a cue, right, that something is putting stress on the body. Now, we can also think of mental pain or mental distress as a cue that something is stressing our mind or our emotional limits. So luckily you know we know we're very adaptable creatures as humans and we can usually deal with a lot of physical and emotional stressors and pain but what do we do when we find we're not coping when in physical pain we like i said we sometimes we know the cause of the pain for example you know where the pain comes from uh, ken you know after you trip and you sprain your ankle and you can treat this pain And at times we understand also the cause of our emotional or mental pain that we're experiencing. Like, you know, for example, when a family member dies unexpectedly, um, you know, we can expect that we're going to be feeling grief or sadness. We also know that these pains typically are temporary be it the grief or the, you know, the sprained ankle. And we can trust that we can cope and manage because we perceive them as temporary pains and we have a reasonable hope that they'll typically heal in time. However, you know, what about those times when we don't really know the cause of our pain? So, can I'm going to turn the tables again and ask you another question. Um, if you had physical pain um, and it's making it really hard for you to cope with your daily living for example let's say your leg is really pain in a lot of pain it's keeping you from being able to go to work or you know maybe to the hockey game and would you you know I guess the question is would you go to a health professional for some kind of physical assessment if you didn't really know the cause of this leg pain?
0: Yes. If it was impeding my ability to enjoy life, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, but, you know, most of us would say, well, that's a stupid question. <laughs> you know, of course, of course you would go to the doctor if you've got, you know, such pain in your leg that you, you you know, you can't function and you don't know the cause. We would definitely dig deep and, and go to our doctors and find out what's going on. Well, if your pain is affecting your ability to go to work, like I said, you know, expect you'd all go get it checked out. So... Ken, I'm going to ask you, you know, another question. Why don't we do the same for emotional distress or emotional pain, especially if it's impacting your ability to work?
0: Well, if you'd asked me that question before we started doing podcasts together, I may have had a different answer, but I'm going to, I've learned a little bit. uh, I've learned a lot from you over the past four podcasts that we've done together. So I'm going to say, you know, uh, to a degree, probably embarrassment for the person that is is feeling it, that they should be able to cope with it themselves. Maybe um, lack of understanding as to what's causing it. And so again, maybe, you know, uh, a bit of hesitation to go because there's not clarity in terms of what you're going to tell the doctor. Um, and I guess, you know, going back to one of the podcasts we've done before, Kathy, I guess the stigma of everything in terms of, you know, it's it's very simple. You you have a physical pain, you hurt your leg, your knee, your back. Um, most people understand that. Um, if you're feeling blue and you can't get out of a funk, does everybody understand that? And do you even really feel comfortable going to explain that to a doctor? I I I'm I'm feeling more comfortable now after all the discussions you and I have had together, but I'd say that in most cases, or if you if you rewound my life, uh, going back a bit, no, I, I probably wouldn't go.
1: You're right, Ken. I think you hit it, you know, the nail on the head there with the stigma piece. I think that's a really big piece. And, you know, and it's its funny because most of us know when we're struggling with emotional pain and, that, and when we're not coping well with our stressors. But society gives us these mixed messages and tells us we should deal with it because, you know, after all, we're all stressed, right? Well, stress has almost become a badge of honor in the workplace. And, you know, feeling frazzled and overwhelmed for some just means that you're busy and productive, which, you know, I would argue you're likely not all that productive because we know, you know, if you're stressed too long or too often, uh, you know, that's going to affect your productivity, uh, not just your mental health, and so you're really just busy. We also know that acknowledging when you're in emotional pain, not just stress, is really difficult for many people. There's still way too much needless stigma and misunderstanding around mental health and mental illness today. The biggest issue in my opinion, by the way, uh, which is in toxic masculinity, which we talked about in our last podcast, is that people, and men in particular, still think it shows weakness to admit to emotional or, or emotional pain and to seek help for those concerns that they might be having. So let's be honest for a moment, Ken. Um, like I said, most of us know when we're feeling emotional pain, but how many of us actually go and seek guidance or professional supports and treatment to manage this type of pain? Ken, I'm just wondering, do you have any idea what a stat might be around this? Like, How many people do you think would actually go go and seek that professional support and treatment when they know that they're struggling.
0: Oh, less than half. Less than half, yeah.
1: So the stats would say, yeah, about 50% of those with clinical level mental health risks do not seek help. And the major reasons actually for this is not knowing what kind of help to be seeking, um, thinking that you know perhaps the help won't make a difference. And some just prefer to try to do it the, themselves and take care of things on their own. So try a self-help approach.
0: Kathy, that's a big number because I remember, and in, 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 I think in other podcasts, we've talked about that mental health affects... Uh what forty percent of Canadians by the time they're a certain age? I mean, so this means that of that forty percent, only twenty percent are going to get help if they're if right. So I mean, it's a that's a big number.
1: It is, and and you know, we'll talk. I'm going to talk a little bit further about that, like because you just mentioned you know one of the stats. and I think the stat you're thinking about is one out of two by the time you reach forty, uh, individuals will have had a mental illness or mental health challenge in their life. So that's like one in two. <laughs> that's pretty huge. And if only half of those people are going to seek help, yeah, that, that's, a, that's an important thing to keep and consider. And a couple other interesting points is that women between, you know, the ages of 15 and 44 are twice as likely to visit their GP as men of a similar age. So, you know, this has a lot to do with how men are viewing help seeking in general. You know there is that old cliche. You know, you can't get your husband to go to the doctor. You know, if unless he was, you know, six feet in the ground, right? Like, <laughs> it's difficult. Um, it's been difficult to get men to to see the value in, in seeking that professional support, not just for mental health issues, but for physical health issues over over the years as well. That's certainly changing, um, and we have a lot of work to do. So, if fifty percent of both men and women who seek help, you know, might seek help, but the women are outnumbering two to one those who uh, who are seeking the help. Then I mean, my question to men is, what's going on? Um, this is significant because by the time Canadians, like I said, reach 40 years of age, one in two have had a mental illness. So that's you know. That's a lot of men in that one too, right? But disproportionately, it's women seeking the the help um, in that 50% bucket, then more so than the men. And we know a lot of people, like I said, then are, you know, if it's only 50%, are going untreated for their mental health issues, which, in my opinion, is really sad, as there really is many safe and effective treatment options available out there. Yet, you know, when it comes to, you know, self-treatment there, you know, you can do it po- in a positive way. There's lots of great self-help books and strategies to improve. And I encourage people to to look at those, certainly if they're hesitant to go and see their doctor. But unfortunately, many people would rather self-medicate uh, the pain away um, and maybe turn to these, you know, more quacky kind of do-it-yourself self-help treatments that are, you know, on the internet, which you know, full of uh, weird things that you can do to try to improve your mental stability on the internet. Um, Or perhaps I just ignore it completely and think it's normal. Or even worse, um, you know, people may just decide life isn't really worth living because it's too painful um, and never seek treatment. So... It is vital, um, you know, to back to the topic of this podcast. It really is vital for all of us to be assessing our mental health, especially when you're experiencing mental distress, you know, and seek treatment if needed. But you can also assess as part of just your annual checkup, right? Most of us, or many of us, (laughs) will go to the doctor for, you know, an annual check in to make sure, you know, we're doing all right, especially as we age. I think it's it's an important thing we do. and we can also do that with our mental health. So the Moods Disorders Association of Canada has a need assessment, uh, and it's aptly named Checkup from the Neck Up. And we can post that for our listeners um, and some other assessment tools that they can explore. So, you know, I think, you know, my message is, you know, please, please don't be afraid to check in when you're feeling not quite yourself to determine where you might focus to feel a bit better. Self-help tools and resources are a good starting point. But further help might be in order, especially if dealing with a significant painful or debilitating issue. Why wait until there's so much pain you're barely coping before you go and seek some help?
0: Absolutely. And, and uh, Kathy, you know, you've mentioned some uh, resources that uh, you can find on the internet. Uh, you've created uh, some safety talks that, you know, there's a safety talk associated with each one of the podcasts that you and I are doing together. So in the IHSA safety talk on assessing your mental health, you mentioned that for staying in top physical condition, it takes work, exercise, diet, sleep, healthy eating, etc. Well, how would somebody create a mental workout? plan to keep them in top mental condition, uh, and what would it include? Most people
1: intuitively know um, we're all different when it comes to personal physical resilience or physical fitness, and that there's many factors that weigh into someone's physical resilience, things like genetics, lifestyle habits, your personal experiences, plus things we don't often think about, like access to good food or stable employment and shelter and so much more. So physical resilience is impacted not only by one's personal traits and behaviors, but also by the social and economic influences around them. And well, guess what? <laughs> mental resilience is the same.
0: Kathy, you mentioned a term that I'm not familiar with. You said mental resilience here, mental resilience. What exactly does that mean? Well,
1: according to you know, the American Psychological Association, mental resilience is The process and outcome of successfully adapting to difficult or challenging life experiences, especially through mental, emotional and behavioral flexibility and adjustment to external and internal demands. So basically, you know, it's about flexibility and and adjusting to life's challenges and adapting and being able to bounce back ultimately is, is what mental resilience is talking about. And there's a number of factors to contribute to how well people adapt to adversities. Predominantly among them are the ways in which individuals view and engage with the world around them, the ability and the quality of social resources, and their specific coping strategies. And there's been psych- lots of research and psychological research demonstrates that resources and skills associated with um, a more positive adaptation or greater resilience can be cultivated in practice. So good news is resilience is learned and it can be learned at any time and at any age. So, you know, I, I really encourage folks to consider how Mental resilience uh, fits into their daily life and how they might build that, just like they might try to build their physical health. Like building a muscle, right? Increasing your mental resilience takes time and intentionality. And the APA tells us that focusing on four components, that's connection, wellness, healthy thinking and meaning that these can empower you to withstand and learn from difficult and traumatic experiences so back to your question if i were to give viewers a mental workout i would encourage listeners to increase their capacity for resilience to cope with and also grow from the difficulties life throws at them
0: okay so you mentioned the uh the american psychological association the apa and you mentioned that they have four core components so Connection, wellness, healthy thinking, and meaning. Can you tell us a bit about a little bit more about each one and how they might be involved in what you just mentioned in building up a sort of a mental workout plan? Sure.
1: So the basics I kind of go over, but Um, I would encourage viewers who are listening um, to learn more about mental resilience and set up a tailored plan for themselves. Like I said, just like a physical plan, Um, there really is not a one size fits all. And we'll make sure that there's resources posted with the podcast for our listeners. So hopefully they'll take a look at those and that'll help get them started. Now, there are different approaches and different models out there, um, but the building blocks are similar regardless of the model you choose. But the APA, uh, which I referenced, tells us to um, do these few things. And one is to build connections and to build connections through prior- tori- prioritizing our relationships. So connecting with empathetic and understanding people can remind us that we're not alone in the midst of defeat difficulties. So focus on finding trustworthy and compassionate individuals who will validate your feelings, um, which will be a support uh, for you as you build your resilience.
0: So that's interesting. So I take it the opposite could be could be true as well. So if you are, if you have an unhealthy relationship, or you have a tendency to discuss all your, you know, the, the pain and what you're going through with somebody else, and they do the same for you, maybe that's not helping. It's, it's just mirroring in, the, uh, in your pain as opposed to helping somebody or connecting with people that can help to, to pull you out.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's okay to, to have um, peer-to-peer conversations of shared lived experience. Um, you know, we do mirror ourselves in each other, but I think there's a time when we need to um, be a listener And then there's times when we need to do the talking. So we need to, you know, sort of dump our stuff and share our stuff um, and find a good, empathetic, understanding person to listen. And that is different um, than just like what you're mentioning, the the mirroring back. So there's some really good tools out there around how to listen for understanding and so I guess
0: could could we say then Kathy in terms of like if you're going to connect with somebody and prioritize a relationship if at the end of the the talk that you have with them you feel good like you talked about feeling and like trusting your emotions if you're feeling good that's that's probably a positive connection with somebody
1: yeah yeah so like I mean the key is looking for um individuals who can validate those feelings so you might Okay. We all have relationships that some are are healthier than others. Um, You know, maybe you have a a brother or a sister who, you know, don't validate your feelings at all. Like maybe if you shared a personal experience, they're like, oh, well, suck it up, cupcake. That's life, you know, And, and on they go um that's not feeling you know going to help you feel very validated in your feelings you're going to
0: feel that's not connecting with an empathetic or an understanding e-
1: exactly person no. exactly right. so okay. so okay. it's not saying we don't have those relationships or we need to get rid of those relationships it's just saying when we're looking at relationships prioritize those ones uh, those relationships that uh are giving you uh, the empathetic and understanding uh stuff that you need right (laughs) so and it's yeah and it's good to have those people in your in your back pocket and in your corner prior to the challenges so that when the challenges hit in life you have someone you know you can go to and and many people have that go-to person that they go to when when life gets hard a lot of us are, are fortunate enough to have that in our life, Some people don't. So if you don't have that in your life, it's really important to prioritize relationships then when you're looking at building resilience is to find that. Um, And and I can talk about that in in just a minute. So like, you know, I think there's, that would be things like joining a group. So like you could, even if you don't have that in your life, if you join a group, maybe you can build some of those relationships along the way. you know, one-on-one relationships. Uh, some people find that, you know, being active in civil groups or a faith-based community or other local organizations provide what we call social support and can help you reclaim hope when needed. So it doesn't always have to be, you know, a family member or close friends. Sometimes it's our affiliations and the groups that we belong to that that help us in those times as well. So research... Um, groups, you know, in your area that could offer you support and a sense of purpose and joy uh, for when you need it. And studies have been well established that uh, the value of so- social support is, is real. Um, so, it, you know, we're social creatures, right? We need people in our lives and we need people in our corners. So another thing would be fostering wellness. And we talked a little bit about this already, um, but taking care of your body, Self-care may be a popular buzzword, (laughs) but it's also a legitimate practice for mental health and building resilience. That's because stress is just as much physical as it is emotional. (laughs) And promoting positive lifestyle factors like proper nutrition, ample sleep, and hydration, and regular exercise can strengthen your body to adapt to stress and reduce the toll of emotions like anxiety and depression there's many books and, you know, information you can read on mindfulness. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's finding a way to, as the word, as the title says, mind, your mind, be mindful of who you are and where you are in the world and and what's going on with you. And one of the Good ways to do that is by pausing and reflecting. So some people like to pause and reflect by doing things like mindful journaling. Sometimes yoga can really ground a person or other spiritual practices like prayer or meditation can also help people um, get to that sense of being mindful of what's going on and help build connections and restore hope um, within themselves, which can prime them to deal with those situations that require resilience. So like when you, when, when you journal or you meditate or you pray, really, you need to ruminate on the positive aspects of your life and recall the things that you're grateful for. Even during personal trials, this will help build your resilience. So it's more, you know, to me, practicing mindfulness is more that internal work and really making sure that you're being mindful of the things that you put in your brain and the things you tell yourself. Um and staying present in the moment as much as possible. Now, another thing which is important to do is to avoid negative outlets. <laughs> we talked about this earlier. Um, many of us are tempted to mask our pain with things like alcohol and drugs and other substances, um, but that's like putting a bandage on a deep wound. So focus instead on giving your body resources to manage stress rather than seeking to eliminate the feeling of stress altogether. I think that's really important, important enough that I'm gonna repeat that. (laughs) It's really important for us to, like I said, instead give your body resources to manage stress rather than seeking to eliminate the feelings of stress altogether. How many times do we hear, oh, that was a rough day? I'm going to go home and kick back and take a, you know, have a couple beers or get blottoed that, that night. Um, it's pretty common. It can take the edge off the stress, but it's just masking it. Um, if you, you know, if you drink enough, it can totally eliminate it as well, but it's not helping us really manage what's going on. Now, another key area of building resilience is finding purpose, and there's many ways we can do that. Um, One way is is helping others. Whether you're a volunteer with a local homeless shelter or simply supporting a friend in their own time of need, you can garner a sense of purpose and foster self-worth and connect with other people and tangibly help others all of which can empower you to grow in resilience. And another is to be proactive. You know, it's, it's helpful to acknowledge and accept your emotions during hard times, but it's also important to help you foster self-discovery um, by asking yourself, what can I do about a problem in my life? Like don't wait for the problems to overwhelm you, but if there's a problem happening, Start taking more of a proactive approach. What can I do about this? If the problem seems too big to tackle, then break it down into more manageable pieces. And this really helps us to, which I think the next part is move toward your goals. Develop some realistic goals and do something regularly, even if it seems like a small accomplishment that enables you to move towards the things you want to accomplish. Instead of focusing on tasks that seem unachievable, ask yourself, what's one thing I know I can accomplish today that helps me move in the direction I want to go? For example, if you're struggling with the loss of a loved one, you might want to move forward. And you, sorry, and you want to move forward, then you can perhaps join a grief group uh, in your area.
0: Yeah, I like, I like this one, Kathy, because you talk about uh, enabling you to move forward with things you want to do. And, then, and even if it seems like a small accomplishment, I know I've heard a saying that says people tend to overestimate what they can get done in, say, a week or, or a couple of weeks. But then they completely underestimate that if they're consistent about doing something, even if it's small steps every day, how much they would accomplish in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in an entire year right? So, it's about, you know, listen, small steps, but small steps over a period of a year add up to a, a lengthy journey, right?
1: Exactly, for sure. And we can, I'm sure many of the listeners can think of many things, you know, I think of, of uh, you know, myself included. Um, oh, going to start that diet. It seems overwhelming when you want to drop, you know, let's say 100 pounds, but you just keep chiseling away at it, keep doing one thing at a time, it will slowly happen, right? And I think it's, you know, there's goals. We all have various goals um, in our life and gotta just keep working at them. And another good, uh, another part of resilience too is building resilience is looking for opportunities um, for that self-discovery. People often find that they've grown in some aspect as a result of a struggle. You often hear that, right? You know, um, what doesn't, you know, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. I think that's a cliche for this. Um, you know, after a tragedy or hardship, people have reported better relationships and have had a greater sense of strength, even while feeling vulnerable. So look for those opportunities in those hard times for that self-discovery. What is actually helping me here, um, you know, that can increase your sense of self-worth and heighten your appreciation for life. Now, another area of um, building resilience is embracing healthy thoughts. This is hard for many of us, um, but it's work that we all we all do when we all need to continue to do. Keeping things in perspective is probably one of the best ways to build, you know, emotional resilience. In my opinion, um, helps you get through those times when you can kind of keep, keep, keep perspective, right, on things. So, how you think can play a significant part. We know in how you feel <laughs> and how resilient you are when you face. Uh, when you're faced with obstacles. So try to identify areas of irrational thinking, such as the tendency to catastrophize difficulties or assume the world is out to get you or adopt a more balanced and realistic thinking pattern. For for instance, if you feel overwhelmed by a challenge, remind yourself that what happened to you isn't an indicator of how your future will go, and that you're not helpless. You may not be able to change a highly stressful event, but you can change how you interpret and respond to it. Another part of this is being able to accept change. Accept that change is a part of life, right? Uh, you know, I think change, what is it? Change, death, and taxes, <laughs> the few certainties in life. Certain goals or ideals may no longer be attainable as a result of, you know, an adverse situation in your life. But accepting circumstances that cannot be changed can help you focus on circumstances that you can alter. It frees up that space in your mind um, and the energy to then, again, move forward. And of course, I think this is so so important this next one is maintain a hopeful outlook it's really hard to be positive when life isn't going your way (laughs) you know an optimistic outlook empowers you to expect that good things will happen to you try to visualize that what you want rather than worrying about what you fear Along the way, note that subtle ways in which you start to feel better as you deal with these difficult
0: situations. Kathy, we've covered a lot of ground here, right? So we've talked about the difference between mental health and mental illness. We've talked about, you know, um, overcoming some of that stigma, particularly if you're in pain or you're not feeling well and looking to get, um, you know, that, that, that you're your mental distress evaluated by a medical practitioner, someone that can help you. Uh, and then we've gone into um, – uh, categories and, and uh, in terms of the four areas that, um, uh, you know, we can get involved in to to better help with uh, the mental health, with your mental health. So So now how about an employer who wants to assist the workers within the workplace? How about an employer who's concerned about the mental health of their employees? What recommendations would you make to them in terms of what they can do?
1: Well, first we must be looking at mental health um, beyond the illness lens in workplaces. We, you know, we don't think much about positive mental health when everyone around us is happy and coming to work, you know, thriving. It's when things are going south for a person that uh, workplaces tend to stop and take notice. So now, workplaces can have a definite influence on positive mental health, but they can also be the cause of mental distress or workplace stress, we call it, which can lead to poor mental health outcomes. So employers that are working towards creating a psychologically safe and healthy workplace um, will be creating space where positive mental health can flourish. And, you know, in my opinion, should, all employers should be actively working to assess and manage uh, psychological health and safety through controls um, and helping to manage workers' work-related uh, stressors. Now, of course, even when workplaces do this, there will always be a need for mental health support in the workplace, as not all stressors are work-related. Many issues that overwhelm workers' ability to cope can um can and often do come from external stressors beyond the control of the employer. There is just one caveat, however, um, in 2019, survey uh, a survey of working Canadians, 75% of respondents said that they'd be reluctant or would refuse to disclose a mental illness to an employer or co-worker. So does this mean we shouldn't bother talking about this stuff or offering support? Well, simply no. It just means we have a ways to go to get workplaces to be more psychologically safe enough for workers to open up and for workers to see the value in the support offered through workplaces and their co-workers. So employers can, you know, train their workers at all levels to recognize when someone might be struggling and how to reach out and offer emotional support. This is a good step to take, but it but I can't stress it enough that if workplaces are not strategically looking at how to improve psychological health and safety, this will just fall flat as many will not feel safe to speak up, right? We've heard like the stat there, 75% don't feel safe to speak up. Um, and in some workplaces, this is really for good reason. So I guess, you know, I'll recap today's podcast. We'll wrap things up. Um by just saying, you know, notice when you're not coping well with life stressors, assess what might be going on and seek help when you need it. And better yet, be proactive and build resilience so that when life stressors do hit you, you're able to cope and bounce back quicker. And also, don't forget to support others a long way because, you know, we all need support from time to time. And, you know, with one and two (laughs) as the stat, next time might be your time.
0: Uh, Well said. Thanks, Ken. Well said, Kathy. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the information you provided. This was a massive topic to cover today, assessing your mental health. So thank you for for uh, all the guidance and um, wisdom you provided to us today and to the listeners. So thank you, Kathy, again, for joining us on Assessing Your Mental Health on the IHSA Safety Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and like us on your podcast channel and visit us on ihsa.ca for a wealth of health and safety resources and information, including mental health. The IHSA Safety Podcast. For more episodes, tips, and all things safety, go to ihsasafetypodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. Each year, about 5,000 IHSA Supervisor Logbooks are ordered for supervisors across Ontario. Why is the logbook so popular? Because it was developed by the industry for the industry. That's what makes
1: it unique. IHSA thanks the members of the Labor Management Network and Advisory Councils who contributed their knowledge, experience, and time to the preparation of this Supervisor Logbook. Contact IHSA at 1-800-263-5024.
0: That's 1-800-263-5024. 5024. Or visit IHSA.ca. That's IHSA.ca.